0: One of the most well-known themes of Christmas songs and Christmas movies is the longing for home. Uh, Maybe it's Bing Crosby singing, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams, right? Or Kevin McAllister getting a little bit more home than he anticipated in Home Alone, or even Jimmy Stewart recognizing how much he loves a home and a hometown that he took for granted in It's a Wonderful Life. Everywhere it seems that you can look this season, people are projecting an idealized view of home. Maybe you yourself have imbibed that kind of idealized view of home. Of course, sometimes that can lead to dashed expectations. Because instead of the time with mom and dad or the grandparents or the kids, instead of that creating joy, it leads to strife. It leads to anxiety. Some of you this morning with deep sorrow know that because of death or divorce, your homes will never be the same. But deep down, these songs and these movies, they resonate with us because we all know what it's like to long for home. In 538 BC, Cyrus the Great, the Persian conqueror of the Babylonian Empire, he told the Jews they could finally go home. They could go home after about 60 years in exile. And at the very beginning of the Old Testament book of Ezra, we read that 42,000 people made the journey home. They were the first of several waves of exiles that would eventually go back to Jerusalem, back into the promised land. But as they went, they didn't sing Bing Crosby, of course. Instead, I think it was probably the words of Isaiah 35 that were undoubtedly on their minds as they struck out across the desert to go home. Early in the prophet Isaiah's book, he warns Israel, he's speaking before Israel goes into exile, and he warns Israel that because they had failed to keep covenant with God, disaster was about to fall upon them. But here in chapter 35, he describes a time when the wasteland of God's judgment is turned into a paradise of God's blessing. Look at some of the changes that Isaiah prophesies. In verse 1, instead of the barren moonscape of the Judean wilderness, the desert floor would be covered with blooming flowers. Uh, think about your drives in different parts of central Texas in the spring where you can just see mile upon mile of Texas blue bonnets. That's what the kind of picture is that we have here. In verse 2, we, we have this comparison of some of the most amazing and beautiful places in the region, Lebanon. Lebanon which was famous for its cedar trees, Carmel, which was filled with mighty oak trees, Sharon, an area of of rich pasture land. Isaiah says that all of these would give their glory to Israel. They would pale in comparison to how God would change and transform the physical landscape of the promised land. In verse 7, Instead of the dry cliffs and the caves where ravenous jackals hid, the land would be watered by springs and pools. It would be like a wetland. With vivid personification in verse 2, Isaiah says that the landscape itself would rejoice with joy in singing. This radical transformation of the physical land is a reflection, Isaiah says, of God's glory. Verse 2, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Now what leads to this radical transformation, this new thing, this this physical change? Well, Isaiah says in verse 4 that it's God's salvation. Look at it with me. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come to save you. Do you see that? Two things that God is doing. First, vengeance against his adversaries, but also justice for his people. When God saves his people, Isaiah says, everything changes. It's not just a private thing interior salvation that his people will experience. Yes, they will be changed, but the world will be changed, and together with creation itself, the people of God will praise him. How seriously do you think the people of God were supposed to take this prophecy? Look at verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Friends, this vision of a renewed earth where God's blessings flow as far as the curse is found is the very thing that is supposed to encourage them and strengthen them on their journey home. If they're without hope, if they're without strength to persevere, they're supposed to remember this promise from Isaiah and it just as much as a cool drink of water or a meal on the way would encourage them and enliven them to take take the next step forward back home. I want you to imagine for a second that you were there. I want you to imagine for a second that you're among that first small group of exiles who are making their way home. As you get closer and closer to Israel, you begin ascending the Transjordanian Mountains, at least that's what they're called today. It's the last Big range of mountains, the last elevation you have to climb before descending into Israel. In Ezra chapter 1, we read that Cyrus sent along a lot of things with this group that first came out of Babylon, including some male and female singers. And so, can you imagine that as you begin ascending those mountains, the male and the female singers begin to sing? And the anticipation builds with each step leading up to the crest until with breathless anticipation, you, you look out over the view in front of you and it's exactly the same. Nothing has changed. How would you have felt? How do you think that group of exiles felt? It's not hard to imagine how the returning exiles would have felt because John the Baptist gives the words to their feelings in Matthew chapter 11. Sitting in prison for having spoken truth to power, John begins to doubt. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe you're not the one. Are you the one, Jesus? Or are we supposed to look for someone else? This isn't shaping up the way that I thought it was going to be. Where's the change? Where's the power? Where's the kingdom? Why am I still in prison while Herod runs free? If you are who you say you are. Jesus answered John in part with words from Isaiah 35. Tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. See, folks, everywhere that Jesus went, he effected a radical transformation. Abundant wine out of water, baskets of bread and fish out of just a few scraps, sight to the blind, strength to the lame, casting out demons, raising the dead. The power of the new creation was being demonstrated in word and deed everywhere Jesus spoke, everywhere Jesus stopped to touch someone sick. Jesus is telling John that in his own ministry, the messianic hour has arrived. The time of God's liberation has come. The signs of the kingdom of God can be seen. But of course, only a few lame men walked after Jesus touched them. Only a few deaf people heard again. Only a few lepers were cleaned. How many more were left waiting for the Savior's touch? The exiles returned home, but something was missing. Even though they were back in the land, their exile in in some senses was still in effect. They were at home, but they were Still on the road. And folks, that's where we're at too. Joy to the world, the, the Lord has come, but not every heart prepares him room. The chains of death and hell have been broken, but his blessings haven't quite penetrated as far as the curse is found. We rejoice at our salvation, even while we long for the fields and floods and rocks, hills and plains to join our songs of praise. A decisive moment in human history has come, and everything is different. But we still wait. We wait for the complete effects of that difference to be seen and felt in our world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it best. Many of you know that name. He was the German pastor who was martyred by the Nazis toward the end of World War II. He says, our whole life is an Advent season. We're waiting for the last Advent, when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. How do you wait? Are you good at waiting? Are you a patient person? Friends, let me give you three ways, three strategies for waiting and watching for the transformation that Isaiah promises. First, realize where you are on the journey. Realize where you are on the journey. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are on this highway of holiness. (laughs) Now, I know that might surprise some of you. Because you read in verse 8 that nothing unclean shall pass over it. And you're honest enough with yourself and with God to know that you're not clean enough to be on the highway of holiness. How can I be qualified, Eric? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11, Paul says, "You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God." Friends, do you notice the tense of those verbs? It isn't if you're good enough, if you're obedient enough, if you keep your nose clean, someday this will be true of you. It's all in the past tense. Why is it all in the past tense? It's because it happened on a hill outside the city gates of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified for your sins. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You are on the highway of holiness. Now if you're not a Christian or if you're struggling with this and you think I don't see how God can love me or accept someone like me. Friends, there's good news for all of us. Look at verse 8. The highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Friends, there are bumpers on this highway. You can't get off. You and I would go all wrong if given half the chance. But those who belong to Jesus Christ are kept safe until the very end. Realize first where you are on the journey. The second strategy to help you wait in this whole life advent is recognize the limits of our current situation. Recognize the limits of our current situation. Isaiah promises nothing less than total transformation. And Jesus does the same thing. Revelation 21, verse five. Behold, I am making all things new. So folks, we must be careful of settling for something less than Isaiah promises. God makes the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. He doesn't pass out glasses. He doesn't give people hearing aids or crutches. He's after total transformation. And that should temper our expectations of what life this side of the new creation would look like. But that doesn't mean that we sit In resigned apathy, just waiting for God to do this work, you and I of all people should embrace a sanctified impatience. We can't hasten the kingdom's arrival, but we should endeavor to reflect the reality of what is still ahead of us. What determines the way that you look, the way that you act, the way that you speak, the things that you think of? Friends, by the way that you do these things, you should tell yourself and you should tell other people, the watching world, that the present isn't all there is to your existence. We must embrace. We must share. We must act out of a vision, not of what's happening here and now, but the vision of Isaiah. what is coming to us? You have to remember. You have to realize where you are on the journey first. Second, you have to recognize the limits of our current situation. And third... You need to do what Isaiah commands. We're on the highway, but we're not yet to our goal. Because Jesus has already inaugurated the new creation, we can have confidence that the prophecy of Isaiah will finally come true. So just like these ancient Israelites that Isaiah is preaching to, you and I must also behold we must also strengthen, we must also say. Those are the only imperatives in this passage. It's all about what God is doing, and then Isaiah says, behold, strengthen, and say. Do you understand what this means? This means that you and I are called to be witnesses We are called to be preachers, to point forward to that new hidden, that new reality. Right now it's hidden behind sin and suffering, but one day it will be seen as clearly as the desert in bloom. So when you are ready to give up and give in, when you are ready to settle down instead of pressing on, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees with this promise. Tell one another, tell your children, tell your parents, keep going. Keep going. The highway is stretching on in front of you, and it will take you home. The future is rushing toward us, Isaiah says, Behold, your God will come, he says in verse 4. Vengeance for his adversaries, salvation for his people. What side of the divide do you find yourself on this morning? Friends, put your hope and trust in the one who promises everlasting joy. The one who is bringing with him a world where sorrow and sighing must flee away from the glory of his presence. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of this prophecy. Begun to be fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ as he ministered on earth, but waiting for its fullness until Christ comes again. God, lift up our eyes to watch the skies, to wait with sanctified impatience for our God to come. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Amen.